Let's do it. You've got questions. We've got answers. I'm live in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and the phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, if you're anywhere near Kalamazoo, Michigan, yeah, anywhere near Kalamazoo, join me. Apologetics Conference going on right now. I'll be speaking a couple of hours from now and then again tomorrow. It is the Growing Deeper Roots Conference. And then next weekend in Charlotte, North Carolina, the massive National Apologetics Conference. I'll be speaking there as well. In fact, we'll be doing a book signing for the newly arriving Job Commentary. So all that info is on my itinerary at Brown, askdrbrown.org. Welcome to the broadcast, 866-34-TRUTH, 866-348-7884 is the number to call any question of any kind, as long as it relates to the content of the broadcast, as long as it is appropriate for Christian radio. And as always, if you've heard a rumor, if you've seen something disturbing, a web clip, and allegedly I've said this or done this, give me a call. We love to bring all the truth into the light. All right, we will start in Texas with Chris. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, hello, Dr. Brown. Thank you for taking my call. You're very welcome. Okay, uh, my my question is a little lengthy, so I, uh, if you please uh, just bear with me a little. Um, so in a, in Dr. Craig Evans' debate with uh, Bart Ehrman, Dr. Ehrman asked Dr. Evans, did he re- do you think the historical Jesus really made the I am statement? Dr. Evans said, I think most of these things were not uttered as we find them by the historical Jesus. Dr. Evans then went on to say, I think John is of another genre, um, and that it's often compared to wisdom literature. He also went on to say that he didn't disagree with Ehrman on that too much and that he thinks John is studied with historical details. Ehrman eventually went on to say we would have to argue what John was intending to produce. So my question is, is there any validity to the claim that John's gospel isn't all the way historical and that it may have intended to mainly be theological in its authorship claims and narratives? All right. Uh, great question, and, and asked very clearly. Thank you, Chris. Uh, number one, I have the utmost respect for Dr. Craig Evans. He is a brilliant New Testament scholar and is certainly a committed believer. With all respect, I would differ with his assessment here. We know that John stands out from the synoptics. In other words, John is coming from a different angle than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But he is presenting the same divine Jesus, just with greater clarity in terms of his divine nature, starting in the first chapter and culminating in the 20th chapter. In that respect, he is in harmony with the other Gospels. He is just putting forth the theme more strongly than the other Gospels do. And you, you have uh, reflections that are similar in, in, for example, Matthew and Luke, where the only one who knows the Father and can reveal the Father is Jesus, uh, similar to what we read in John 1.18, that the Son makes the Father known. 
As for the I am statements, if they were just produced by a later historical community, uh, the kind of reading back into the words of Jesus, their later reflections, then we should reject it. In other words, if this is not what Jesus said about himself and just what later Christians put back into his mouth, that would be a problem. It would be one thing to say that not every word is literal. In other words, that not every word was remembered exactly, but we have the spirit of what Jesus said. That's what some scholars believe. Others, like me, I I read it as that's what's written, that's what happened, that's what Jesus said and did. So as far as the historicity of John, there's nothing in the text itself that is historically inaccurate. In other words, there's nothing in the text itself where historians or archaeologists can come along and say, hey, we found a major contradiction between history and what John wrote. That's not the case. Rather, it's the theological emphases in John that have caused certain scholars to say this must have been written later, or some of the development between church and synagogue, this is written later. I reject those things. If you want to get into good scholarly in-depth view of this, uh, check out Craig Keener's two-volume commentary on John and his introduction, which is massive, where he'll get into a lot of these details. Uh, otherwise, if you just search for historicity of the Gospel of John, you'll get some conservative websites that'll give you the data for it. So with all respect to Dr. Evans, who is brilliant and knows a ton of stuff, I would differ with him on this, and of course, completely differ with Bart Ehrman. Okay. Well, thank you for your... Um uh, thank you for answering that question. Uh, so I, I, if I may ask a follow-up question, what do you think would lead him to come to the conclusion that he uh, came to? I'm speaking of uh, Dr. Evans, who I also have a lot of respect. I might even have one of his books, um, his book, uh, Jesus and His World, the Archaeological Evidence. So I have a great oh, deal of Oh, yeah, Dr. Evans is, is, a, is a highly reliable, highly respected evangelical scholar. And as I said, he, he knows a, a ton of stuff. What I would say is sometimes there is a big gulf between a fundamentalist reading of Scripture, which reads the Bible as if it just dropped from heaven without any cultural context, and the critical historical reading, which kind of questions everything. And sometimes scholars wanting to be fair and honest and rightly assess the evidence will, will swing a little too far to the critical historical view. In other words, maybe give it too much credence or maybe just say, well, the style is too different. Uh, The Jesus that's presented is too different. And because of that, lean into it. But I see it as as part of, a, again, a larger scholarly philosophy as opposed to something where, hey, look, you know that John can't be right for X, Y, Z reasons. Instead, there are what people refer to as unintended coincidences that you'll find something that you only have with true eyewitness accounts where just a little detail is dropped in unnecessarily or something a little extra is added in that doesn't seem to enhance the story, but just an eyewitness or someone very close to the account would share and someone later wouldn't know to put those things in. So John, like the other Gospels, has these and therefore I take it as as fully reliable in its presentation of Jesus. Chris, again, thank you for the questions and the clarity with which you presented them. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Washington. Jonathan, welcome to the Line of Fire. Oh, hey, hey, Dr. Brown. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome. 
So um, I saw you posted a video, I think it was just today, um, uh, uh, saying why you're not dogmatic on the age of the earth. Yep. Yeah, so um, I don't know. This, this, might, this might be a stupid question. I don't know if it is. But uh, so uh, I guess like to say that the that you're not dogmatic on the age of the earth. Uh, what are your thoughts on like like uh, the uh, whole idea of like like Darwinian evolution or us being descendants from apes or and, and things like that? Yeah, I, I categorically differ with Darwinian evolution. I categorically differ with the ideas of macro evolution, so that you go from one species to another. Uh, I believe the Bible absolutely teaches against that. And in fact, when I tweeted out, uh, my producer Matt sent me a link saying that that video was, was being posted today. So when I tweeted out a link to it, I said this. Let me just uh, find it. Uh, scrolling down here. I'm 100% sure of God's literal creation of the universe. And I'm equally sure the Bible does not teach Darwinian evolution, but I'm not dogmatic about dating the creation. So for me, the Bible categorically speaks of God being the creator of the universe and creating it with a certain order and purpose and tells us that everything reproduces after its kind, in which case macroevolution cannot be true. On the flip side, I believe that the biblical text of creation could be read differently in terms of the age of the earth. You could make a, a stronger argument based on the genealogies that, that the earth is young, but because I don't have the scientific acumen to sort out who's right between old earth creation scientists and young earth creation scientists, I leave that part open because to me the biblical text could go either way. But clearly the biblical text goes against Darwinian evolution, macroevolution, any type of random process, absolutely. All right. So I... Uh... I, I remember you saying uh, some time ago that you were friends with Dr. Frank Turek. Did, did I hear correctly? You bet. Oh, okay. Yeah, because uh, I think I think if I understand uh, Dr. Turek, he also uh, d uh, agrees that uh, Darwinian evolution directly contradicts the scripture. But at the same time, if I recall correctly, he said that he actually believes uh, that the Earth is a lot older than. Uh, than uh, 6,000 years or so. Oh, yeah, there, there are plenty of old earth creationists. In other words, we dogmatically hold to God being the creator, and we or they uh, reject Darwinian evolution. At the same time, they believe in an old earth. So, yeah, that's, that's not uncommon. In other words, you can believe in an old earth and reject Darwinian evolution uh, as well. Uh, but exactly what Dr. Turek's beliefs are, I haven't, I haven't discussed that with him in depth but I'm very happy. If you say, well, how come you have more old earth creation scientists on than young earth creation scientists? Because they reach out to me more. That's all. If, if others reached out more and there was a new book that came out or something relevant, gladly have them on and continue the discussion anytime. Hey, thank you for the call. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to our friend Todd in Seagrove, North Carolina. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Brown. Uh, before I ask my question, I did want to let you and uh, Craig Keener know that I uh, downloaded the audio book of Not Afraid of the Antichrist today. Oh, excellent. Good, good. If I, if I remember, you're unable to, to, uh, to see, so that's your way of right. taking in books, correct? Excellent. Yeah, right. let us know how you enjoy it. I will. 
Okay, and my question is coming from uh, Chapter 8 of Judges, uh, speaking about where Gideon is pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian, and he comes to the city to the city of Sukkoth, and he's asking, you know, for bread for him and his men because they're weary. And it's like the leaders essentially tell him that they don't believe that, you know, he's going to you know, succeed in his task in capturing these two kings. So he tells them that when he comes back, you know, he's going to tear them with the thorns of the wilderness and briars. So when he does come back with the kings in tow, it's like it, it says that he does do that and he and he taught them. And I'm just curious to find out what uh, your take is about the, the, the thorns and the briars and, and the, the, the teaching. Yeah, all right. We'll uh, talk about that when we come back. Phone lines are open, 866-348-7884. Now is a great time to call. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. We we actually have a line open, 866-348-7884. We don't often have that on a Friday, so good time to get in, and we'll get to all your calls as soon as possible. 866-34-TRUTH. My latest article is up on the stream. It is how to avoid Trump impeachment fever, how to not get caught up in the constant news cycles and have your emotions all over the place. That's at stream.org. So, Todd, to answer your question in Judges, the eighth chapter, uh, it's pretty self-evident. You've got thorns and briars. You've got things that you don't want to get your hands stuck on. And Gideon punishes these these proud leaders and says, all right, we're going to teach you a lesson. And they bring out thorns and briars and basically thresh the people with them, punish them with them, rip them up with them. That's, that's what happens. It's brutal and in the midst of war. And yeah, that's, that's what happens pretty much the way it's written there. Hey, thank you for the question. I appreciate it. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Lexington, Kentucky. Michael, welcome to the line of fire. Hello, how are you doing, Dr. Brown? Very well, thank you, sir. Uh, well, uh, for starters, I wanted to say thank you uh, for writing the book, um, Jezebel's War Against America. Uh, I listened to it at work and um, <clears throat> while I'm painting, and I, I have multiple books in my audible, and this is like the only one that I like listen to, like, almost entirely to the end. I think I have maybe 34 minutes more to listen to, and it's excellent, and it's really helped me extremely. So I just wanted to say thank you, sir. Oh, you are very welcome. You know, it's it's so encouraging to hear that because when God moved on me to write it, it was written with mm-hmm. unusual intensity. I was just gripped and carried. And I've heard from many readers that they read the book the same day they got it, and they'd never done that before. But it's awesome to hear that you had that same kind of experience uh, with the audiobook. Wonderful. Thank you for the good word. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. No problem. No problem at all. Um, um, my question was, and I'm, I'm sorry to the uh, screener, because I, I had a question, and I completely forgot what it was, but it's still a <laughs> theological question. I had no a question problem. about, uh, so, so, so I asked the question that I actually had instead of the one about hell, if that's okay with you, sir. 
you go for it. Okay, thank you so much. Um, so the question I had is, um, uh, so gr- growing up in uh, the body of Christ, I heard a lot of teaching about um, uh, sinless perfection, mm-hmm. and the teachers that uh, would uh, teach on this doctrine would te- would come from scriptures like uh, Matthew, I think it's five. I think it's 548, but be yep. perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. Um, and, you know, any little text in the New Testament, it talks about perfection and pressing toward perfection and things like that. And even like in 1 John chapter 3, uh, verses 2 and 3, where it talks about for... Um, uh, it talks about uh, for we are pure, even as He is pure, and things like that. And I'm like, okay, I see some of these scriptures, and I... I I see some of what is being talked about, but I'm like, okay, how do we get a proper interpretation on that? And I know, you know, you, you, you studied the scriptures well. And, um, so I'm just, I'm trying to get how you look at this. I don't think that they're right. Um, I think it's a lot of haughtiness and pride involved in it, but I just want to hear where you're coming from. So, Yes, sir. So is it possible for us as followers of Jesus in this world to live perfectly right. sinless lives? And then to continue in that, not to go a second without sinning, but to never, ever sin. So the the first problem I have with that is the New Testament is constantly dealing with sin. In other words, in letter after letter after letter, Paul, John, Peter, they're dealing with sin issues. James, Jacob, they're dealing with sin issues in the body. So if, if this was the teaching, then somehow people didn't get the memo because they were, they were mm-hmm, falling yeah. short. That's, that's the first <laughs> thing. The second thing is... Does anyone think that in this world we or ever that we will be perfect the same way God is perfect? That that we will be perfectly and fully and totally holy in the same way that God is? So when Jesus is saying is be perfect, uh, it would you wouldn't even have a Hebrew word or an Aramaic word that would mean perfect exactly the way we'd mean it today. But it's be whole mm-hmm. and complete and consistent, just as your father is. And what's the context? That, that he lets his, his rain fall on the just or causes it to fall on the just and the unjust. So you treat the unkind the same way. You bless those who curse you, and you do good to those mm. who hate you. In that sense, be like your heavenly Father. Be complete and whole as he is. First John 3 clearly tells us that the person who is yeah. born again will not continue in sin, meaning that if, if you live in persistent rebellion against God— in persistent habitual sin without turning from it, then it's questionable that you ever knew God because the seed of God remains in the believer because of which we don't continue in sin. But First John also tells us if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And this is something ongoing. If we confess our sins, this is something ongoing. He forgives us. And and look at First John 1, 7, which, which says this. If we... If we walk in the light as God is in the light. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses us or purifies us from all sin. In Greek, that's present continuous. So even when we walk in the light, we still fall short. On my very best, holiest day ever, I still fall short. I don't perfectly love God with all of my being. I don't perfectly love my neighbor with all of my being, even on my very best day. And maybe on my very best day, I'm a little proud about it, you know? At last mm-hmm. last thing mm-hmm. is this, 2 Corinthians 7.1 tells us, because of the great promises God has given us, 
we should cleanse ourselves from everything that defiles flesh and spirit, perfecting or bringing to complete this holiness and the fear of God. This is an ongoing process. In other words, every day I present myself before the Lord, cleansed by the blood of Jesus, but seeking to live a life more pleasing to him. And maybe it's discipline in one area of my thought life. Maybe it's more devotion and focus in prayer. Maybe it's greater love uh, to, to a critic or something like that. That every day I want to grow and more and more into the image of Jesus. And that's what Paul prays in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, that the God of peace will sanctify us fully, holy, spirit, soul, yeah. body. That's the goal. That's what we strive towards. And ultimately, that's where we, we look uh, to, uh, to step into God's resurrection power, uh, ultimately and forever. The last, last comment, Michael. What I've sometimes found is the people that preach sinless perfectionism, when you press them on it, they get angry. <laughs> so it's like, okay, I just found a little weak spot there. Uh, God bless you, man. But let's all, as forgiven people, strive by God's grace to be like Jesus in thought, word, and deed. All right, uh, we go to Matt in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Welcome to the line of fire. Thanks for having me, Dr. Brown. Um, you bet. Just recently, I just came across. I just recently came across um, a book by Cheon, um, which I'm pretty sure that you're aware of him. Um, a book that he just wrote called Modern Day Apostle, and this is along the question of the fivefold ministry in the charismatic world. Um, he goes on to say in the book on page 39, he states, "I believe that we're in a season where God is changing the expression and understanding of Christianity." And he goes on to say, the expression of Christianity has shifted from individual salvation to discipling nations. Um, so what is your take on that? And um, yeah, what is your take on that? Yeah, actually, actually someone uh, sent me some quotes of that from Facebook, you know, very concerned uh, and, and wanted me to make a statement on it. So first, Che and I uh, have been back in touch for the first time maybe in 10 years or so, uh, a few weeks ago. So it's great to hear from him again and be back in touch. It was for some other matters, not regarding his book. And re regarding what he wrote there, there is a debate among scholars as to how we should interpret Matthew 28. And this was something, this goes back centuries, really. Is it that Jesus says, make disciples of the nations, meaning make disciples of people in all nations, which is how I read it and understand it, or make disciples of the nations, meaning disciple whole nations, obviously through turning the hearts and minds of people, but disciple whole nations. That would be a way that's been often read by post-millennialists. In, in other words, this is something that goes back uh, centuries, as I said, in terms of a belief in post-millennialism that the gospel will spread through the entire earth and the whole world will ultimately be converted and there'll be a millennial kingdom after which Jesus will return. Now, I don't know where Chase stands on that. I don't know if we've ever discussed his eschatological views, but I don't hold to that view personally. I don't hold to the view of discipling nations. I hold to the view of discipling people, and as people are changed, nations can change. I'm, I'm sure Che agrees with, with that statement, but I would say it differently there. One other thing is is uh, I believe in fivefold ministry. I absolutely believe that there are apostolic and prophetic leaders today. I believe that for decades, but I am not part of what is called the New Apostolic Reformation by the critics. There is something that Peter Wagner dubbed the New Apostolic Reformation, 
and there was an organization he led that emphasized that. That organization has since made some major changes in emphasis, which is why I'm, I'm happy to work together with, with brothers and sisters in that because it doesn't have the same emphasis. But this idea that there is a worldwide coalition of leaders under the network of something called the New Apostolic Reformation with common beliefs and doctrines and some type of joint leadership is a myth of the hypercritics. Where Che defines it, I believe he's being closer to the Peter Wagner definition. And on the one hand, it's talking about something broad and philosophical, which you, is not connected or related. On the other hand, the specific movement that Peter Wagner was part of and that Che continues in. But bottom line, uh, just he goes this on. Is, to, yeah, he goes on. To, yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. But he goes on to say, though. I'll um, tell you what. Stay there. Stay there. We'll come back. We'll resume on the other side of the break. Stay there. Thanks. The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on The Line of Fire. This is Michael Brown coming away live from Kalamazoo, Michigan. I was actually scheduled to be speaking now at the Growing Deeper Roots Apologetics Conference, but they were able to switch my speaking time so I could do the broadcast live. So, we are here. Phone lines are open, 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go back to Matt in Minneapolis. Sorry I had to cut you off before the break, but you needed more clarification, please. Yes, no, that's okay, Dr. Brown. Um, yeah, so um, I was going to address this, too, on the same page. He was going to say, but we now understand that when Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost, he was speaking of more than individual salvation. And so that's the concern that I have is, um, is there a shift in the gospel focus um, from Cheon and something that's not found in Scripture? Yeah, uh, I don't interpret that the words of Jesus that way either. When Jesus comes to seek and save that which is lost in context, he's talking about people. That being the case, as far as I know, Che and his churches that relate to him have a very strong burden to evangelize and to to win people to the Lord, but they say we're not stopping there. There are other things that have been taken and stolen and and from us that should be restored. So that's where we would have a difference in terms of the interpretation of the verse. So I don't I don't read either of those verses the way Che does in terms of what you just read from the book, but but I know the quotes are accurate uh, in terms of your reading from it and and those were sent to me. Yeah, so I I differ uh, with those. What's interesting, though, is that the, the issue of this being something that's just, you know, apostolic ministry or fivefold ministry, that's really not the case. For example, plenty of people involved in fivefold ministry, their emphasis is making disciples of individuals, right? And, and through that, if you're going to change yeah. a nation, it's through individuals being changed. But I'm, I'm, uh, I'm looking at, uh, for example, postmillennialworldview.com and questions that are sent here to Kenneth L. Gentry, who's a highly respected post-millennial scholar. So yep. it's a question about Matthew twenty-eight nineteen, And uh, uh, so this is a question that comes up 
in post-millennial context. Uh, and he says, first, it's significant that Jesus chose the word ethnos in his command rather than Vesalia uh, or anthropos. So one suggesting political kingdoms, the other individual men. My understanding of nations, it means men and their cultural ethnic relations. A culture is the sum deposit of the normative exercises of men. That is what results from the normative activities of men and their surroundings. Blumberg notes the, the word that is somewhat equivalent to ethnic groups. So he's going on there. Uh, and he says, I believe all cultures as cultures are to be discipled. That is brought under Christian instruction and influence. Now, what's interesting is that Kenneth Gentry is a non-charismatic, perhaps even anti-charismatic, and absolutely does not believe in fivefold ministry. But he reads Matthew 28, 19 the same way. So this is not a debate about apostolic ministry or fivefold ministry. This is a debate about interpreting certain verses and I differ with Dr. Gentry and, and my friend Cheon in terms of that understanding of Matthew 28, 19. But it's not uncommon. That's the point I'm making. It's not a charismatic, anti-charismatic, or apostolic, non-apostolic issue. It's interpretation of that verse. Are we discipling people or nations? Uh, I, again, I do believe that by discipling people, we can see nations changed. But it's by discipling individuals. All right, does that answer the question, sir? Thank you, Dr. Brown. You yes, bet. Thank you. All right. 866-34-TRUTH. And, and just to clarify once more, and then right back to the phones, number one, I deny the existence of a worldwide new apostolic reformation. That is a myth of the critics, that there is this conspiratorial 360-plus million member quasi-organization that shares the same goals and some type of joint leadership strategy or whatever. That is, that is a complete myth of the hypercritics. That's number one. Number two, there is a broad movement of Pentecostal charismatic churches, unrelated, many of them with deeply different doctrines and beliefs, that Peter Wagner dubbed a New Apostolic Reformation looking at this observationally as a professor missiologist some decades ago. That was just his way of coining something, but it was, it was just like talking about the, the, the larger spiritual trend or a, 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 an evangelism trend or something like that, to actually make it into something qualitative, and this is some organized thing. It's complete nonsense if anyone tried to do that. Third, Peter Wagner led what was uh, called an International Coalition of Apostles, that has since changed the name to apostolic leaders so that people are not just being branded apostles. And I work together with brothers within that, like, like my friend Bishop Joe Matera, who leads the U.S. group. Okay, I'm, I am a member of that group, which is just leaders. In fact, I've gone, I think, to one meeting in three years. But it's just leaders that are working together, sharing resources for common good. That's all. That's all it is. So anyway, it's... It is so simple, and yet critics make this, manufacture this thing, and, oh, you're part of the NAR. It's like, oh, gosh. And, and whenever I talk to other leaders about it, they're like, what is it? What are they talking about? I said, don't you know you're one of the leaders in it? They just shake their heads. Like, what are these guys thinking? Anyway, just want to let you know, 866-34-TRUTH. Let us go to Robert in Australia. Thank you for calling the line of fire. Greetings, Dr. Brown. How are you? Can you hear me? Doing very well. Thank you, sir. 
I'm a huge fan of yours. I've been a long-time listener, and uh, only now I'm getting to talk to you. So it's, <laughs> it's quite it's Thank quite you. What, what time is it where you are? It's currently 3.40 in the morning. Oh, God bless you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, I woke up to uh, get some water, and then I saw the notification that you're, that you're live, and I was like, oh, I'll just listen for two minutes. And then I heard you speak about creation evolution, and I, I just had to call in. Oh, so, sweet. Um, All right. Hopefully you'll be able to get back to sleep afterwards. Yeah. <laughs> well, my question is um, just a quick background on who I am. So I'm mostly from a scientific background, uh, currently a master's engineering student. And I've been a Christian for 10 years now. I'm 31 at the moment. And in the last five years, I've become huge fans of, of yourself and other scholars like Michael Heiser, Hugh Ross. So there's, there's like a variety of a sort of science theological mix. And you've, you've obviously hosted uh, Heiser and Dr. Ross on your show as well before. Um, now, my question is in regards to why do you deny evolution when I notice that scholars like Heiser and Hugh Ross who tackle, say, the atheistic types of evolution, that they've actually engaged in a positive way, highlighting that uh, in the early church. So Heiser himself has pointed this out in ET conferences, that in the early church, this discussion on the the plurality of worlds, like whether there's ET life, that they actually had a proto-evolutionary sort of interpretation of Genesis. And then you see this, this idea develop over time, and then finally had a scientific form in Darwin. And um, and so I don't see how scholars like him, or even scientists like Hugh Ross, would would then say would would then agree with the, with a Youngert interpretation. Because from what I've read, Youngert interpret Youngert creationism only arose from the Seventh Day Adventist Church or 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 a Christian group in the 1800s and the early 1900s. So how would you respond to that? All right. First, I I am not aware of Dr. Heiser or Dr. Ross believing in Darwinian evolution and macroevolution and the evolution from one species to another. If that's what they hold to, I'm, I'm quite unaware of that. Microevolution, sure. Development within species, yeah, that would be in accordance with Scripture and in accordance with scientific evidence. But everything I understand scientifically, and as you know, that's not my, my background or forte, goes against macroevolution. The, the Cambrian explosion goes against macroevolution. From what I can tell, the old earth creationists, just as much as the young earth creationists, uh, reject the Darwinian scheme and, and see it birthed in, in a very wrong mindset, either an anti-God mindset or an anti-Bible mindset, and that they would point to thousands of professors and scholars and uh, academics who are rejecting Darwinian evolution, you know, the list grows and grows and grows. So uh, do, do you have specific quotes or links where they, where they actually hold to Darwinian evolution and, and say so? Yeah, so they, yeah, so they, so for example, uh, on the FAQ on the Reasons to Believe website, you actually have a, uh, a question dedicated on the the nuance of theistic evolution, like where, where does reasons to believe disagree with theistic evolutionists, like those in Biologos? 
Right. And and basically, um, Hugh Ross says, well, I'm sort of like a special creationist in the sense that because because ultimately there's no differentiation between macro and micro. Basically, if if you have millions of years of micro that then leads into a macro, that's basically the same thing. And so Hugh Ross will argue, well, every micro change is by the uh, by the providence of God, so to speak. Like God is directly every nanosecond, every permutation that's taking place is God directed. And so in that sense, evolution is not naturalistic and and purposeless and random and you know like the the, the atheistic version of it so in that sense so, so the hence what heroes calls himself a progressive creationist so it's it's sort of like a a quasi evolution model but at the same time he wants to distance himself from a naturalistic evolution model meaning god's directly involved but but high right, yeah but still out, uh, yeah, yeah um, j- um i'm just looking at a book on the Reasons to Believe website, what Darwin didn't know. And it says, uh, since Darwin, a scientific, scientific revolution has taken place, it's not surprising that Darwin's theory no longer represents a viable explanation of nature's record. So I would, yep. I'd have to look into this in more depth or have it on the show to discuss. But yeah, uh, number one, there's no scientific confirmation of transitional species ever. And number two, to me, it's, Contrary to the explicit testimony of Scripture, one, that everything God made reproduces after its own kind, two, how human beings are a distinct creation in his image, set apart from the rest of creation and given dominion over creation in a distinct and different way. Uh, So those, to me, would be distinct reasons that I could not believe in macroevolution. As as for the idea, sir, of of, um, old earth creationism being something more recent, no, in the Jewish interpretation, in the Middle Ages, there was no real fixed six-day idea, and there's some speculation about that in the early church. Hey, thank you for the call. Get some rest, man. It's The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks, friends, for joining us on the line of fire, coming away live from Kalamazoo, Michigan. Michael Brown, thanks for joining us, 866-34-TRUTH. Hey, just a reminder, if you have read any of my books and they've been a blessing to you, we put a lot of time, effort, energy into them, obviously, and really seek to deliver the strongest, best message we possibly can uh, share it with a friend. Tell a friend about the book if they've been a help or blessing. And then post a review on Amazon. Wherever you get the books, get them on christianbook.com, wherever else you get them. But post a review on Amazon, amazon.com, just because it's the most trafficked book website. And when you see reviews, it just encourages other people to check the book out for themselves. Uh, speaking of that, let's go over to Steve in... I won't go. Steve wanted to talk to me about a recent book, but we'll go elsewhere. Let's go to Mike in Monel, Arizona. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Mike Lublick. Uh, good to talk with you. Thank you, Mike. Okay, I was interested in the second verse of the Bible. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. 
and I just appreciate you looking into this. Uh, what is your what is your what do you see when uh, you hear the face of the deep? What picture comes to your mind? A picture, um, you know, it's I don't really read it as a picture, but I in my mind uh, I'm thinking if if I if I picture it and stop, so you've got the vast waters that are just running crazy over uh, uh, over the earth. And and God's spirit though is is hovering over you know the that's the basic picture I get if if you're uh, you know interestingly the um, uh, you know we we have the rest of the verse right so so God's spirit uh, hovering over the the water uh, but there's darkness yeah. over the surface of the deep yeah uh, what what specifically uh, would you be thinking about the Hebrew word well, to home means that means deep yeah to home yeah. dark the deep or the depths or could it mean like fear or possibly evil uh when there's a lot this word is used quite often in the bible and it you know you see it in the psalms uh the waters saw oh god the waters saw thee they were afraid the depths also were troubled you know psalms like that the deep calls upon deep at the noise Thy righteousness is like the great mountains. Thy judgments are a great deep, O Lord, thou preservest man. You know, that deep, it seems like it's almost more than just simply physical. It's more almost fear or evil. Well, no, here's, here's where like you're that? going. Here, here's where you're on track. The word just means deep, and it, it could refer to you know deep sea, abyss, in that respect, okay? And as I'm looking at just all the yeah. different dictionary usages, you know, five different Given them one lexicon, deep or deep sea or primeval ocean, which is in the Genesis account, or deep depth or of abyss, river or abyss. The grave. Right. Um, yeah, in, in parallel with that. But but here's the thing: the word has no actual connection to the word fear. Okay, there's there's no connection okay. whatsoever to uh, to the word fear or to concepts related to fear. There's no lexical connection. However, here's where you're on to something. The waters themselves, the sea, symbolizes symbolize powers of chaos and darkness. And, you know, there's something foreboding about it, a boat out at sea, and then the weather or the tide sweeping in or a flood or something like that. That's why there is no sea in the New Jerusalem. That's why Jesus is rebuking the wind and the waves when they're out at sea. So the sea, uh, and, and in fact, uh, yam in Hebrew, uh, that, that word for sea in, in uh, Canaanite religion not only meant sea, it meant the sea god. So tahom, as the depths of that, speaks then metaphorically of, of, you could say, the worst of it, the most hidden, the darkest, the most obscure, and in that sense, scary. So the nuances can be there. But the word itself is not in any way directly related to, to words or concepts having to do with, with fear or chaos. Rather, it's the nature of the beast, you could say, the depths of the waters, the primeval ocean, which speak of, of chaos, which speak of the unknown, which speak of great power, that tie in with the concepts you're thinking about. So as long as you understand it's, it's a related concept as opposed to something that's actual le lexical or semantic, then you're on the right track. Is that clear? 
Very interesting. Much appreciated. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, and thanks for looking at the word. Yeah, and and by the way, uh, didn't mean to cut you off there, Mike, Uh, but a a lot of my studies over the years have been done with a Hebrew concordance out, just looking at how a word is used 20, 30, 40, or 100 times, or with a Greek concordance uh, and English translations to help me, looking at how a word is used, and then say, ah, okay, this is a concept related to it. So you just have to understand it in its right context. All right? Yes, appreciate it. All right, sure thing. 866-34-TRUTH. We go to Alex in Massachusetts. Welcome to the Line of Fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Pleasure to speak with you. Um, So my question was, um, we have like Brother Costi Hain, Brother Todd Friel, um, who say, you know, for instance, Pastor Erwin McManus of Mosaic Church, um, they say Todd White, fall into this thing called the ontological kenosis heresy, if I'm saying that right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to get your take on that. Is it a heresy? And now, do they fall into it, or are they being hypercritical um, and then just assuming and placing some comments that they said into that category. Um, All right. Because, the, yeah. Here, here's what's essential. Here's what's essential to believe that's right and wrong, okay? It is essential to believe that at all times Jesus remained God, that the Son was always God, that he never stopped being God. If you say at any point he ceased to be God, that's heretical. If you say at any point walking on the earth or between his death and resurrection, that he ceased to be God, that would be rightly rejected as heretical. Uh, To my knowledge, the men that you mentioned do not believe that at any point he ceased to be God. Now, here's what I do believe Scripture says, that he willingly lays aside some of his divine prerogatives. For example, he was fully human as well. He didn't fake that he was sleeping as a man. He didn't fake that he was hungry. He was genuinely human. And he had, in that sense, human limitations that he willingly took on himself. That's why he did not know the day of his return while he was on the earth. He said, only the Father knows. Does he know now? Yes, of course. But he willingly limited his knowledge. And in the same way, we read in Luke 4 that he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then in Matthew 12 and Luke 11, he says that he drives out demons by the Spirit of God. And then in Matthew 10, he says specifically that, uh, excuse me, in Acts 10, Peter explains how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and power, and he went about doing good and healing all who were under the oppression of the devil. So the question is, why would he be anointed by the Spirit to do these things if he was walking in his full divine prerogatives all the time. So he willingly laid them aside. I have seen the hypercritics go after John MacArthur and say he's guilty of, quote, the kenosis heresy. And I have seen non-charismatic scholars say, of course he willingly laid aside some of his divine privileges. That's why he was anointed by the Spirit to do certain things. So as far as I can tell, I can't speak for, for Kosti Hinn uh, at, at all. We've had some very friendly dialogue, and I can't speak for his position on this. But what I've seen from Todd Friel and others is a hyperreaction, is a going beyond what uh, 
others are saying and reading something into it. At the same time, I've seen statements from some charismatic leaders that are very imprecise and could easily be misunderstood. But when I've asked them, are you saying that Jesus at any point stopped being fully God? They said, no, 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 of course he was always fully God. That to me is the key point. Philippians 2, that's where we get the word kenosis from. It does speak of Jesus emptying himself or the son emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. Some claim even when he was on earth, he was walking in full deity so that he was meaning that he was omnipresent, that he was omniscient, uh, but just would confine his activities to his physical body there. Uh, I don't know that scripture says that he was omnipresent uh, when he was here or that he knew everything all the time. It seems that the Holy Spirit revealed things to him and the Holy Spirit anointed him to do certain things that was willing at any moment he could assume, reassume, full divine prerogative. At any moment, by his choice, he could do whatever he desired to do because he's fully God, but he laid those prerogatives aside. From what I can tell, there's an overreaction from the hypercritics, but unfortunately, I hate to say this, I see it very, very consistently. Rather than interacting with someone and saying, could you please clarify what you believe, they take the worst possible construction and run with it, and that further solidifies their, aha, you see, we got you, and then that that riles up their followers, like, heresy, we got to get these guys, whereas to me, it's terribly divisive, and where there's an error, let's correct it, let's make sure we address it properly, but there are right and wrong ways to do it. Tragically, the hypercritics do it the wrong way almost all the time. May God help them to step higher. All right, friends. Have a blessed weekend. Take advantage of our many resources at askdrbrown.org. We'll be back with you on Monday.